So you know what I'm doing right now? What are you doing right now? Shuffling a deck of cards. Just because we're talking about games, you just figured it's appropriate. Well, I'm just doing. Uh, I'm doing all these little flourishes over here. These uh, <laughs> really fancy magician flourishes. And it's too bad this is audio only because that would be wonderful to see. Yeah, let's not talk about this in in, in person. <laughs> just trust me that I'm really good. Okay, you know I'm going to see you in a couple months, so you got to show me all your tricks. Oh, crap! All your moves. I got to practice. <laughs> All right. So so we're we're talking about games today. So I I I feel like you're a lot further along in the whole gaming kind of creating games world than I am. So what if I kind of tell you where I am and see if that leads into you dropping some knowledge? Yes, tell me where you are. <laughs> okay. So my brother runs a podcast called the My, Mildly Alarming Podcast that is for board game type people. And they just have a shtick that they basically decided that they're in a war against my my podcast, the Five Minute Geek Show. And so they're doing all these like hilarious little segments where they're like doing all this audio editing to make it like sound like it's a radio broadcast about our shows being a war. I, I love it. They're way more creative than I am. But I was like, why don't we build a game? You guys are board game designers. I'm a you know web developer. Why don't we build a really simple game where our you know respective audiences can battle each other? And they drop this massive thing with this you know like just you know, dozens of pages, not dozens, many, many, many rules. And I was like, guys, I can't do that. You know, we're talking, I'm talking a couple dozen hours in my free time here or there spread out across a couple months. So they really trimmed it down to basically like a dice rolling game. And then maybe we'll up it from there. Um, so what I realized was, you know, there's a lot of things I don't know here. I don't know about a lot about game logic and I don't know a lot about, you know, game UI and I've never actually built a backend, although I think it would be relatively simple for a game. So, Un, unintentionally or un uh, you know subconsciously not subconsciously whatever without actually realizing what i was doing i ended up doing a pretty heavy kind of separation of concerns type thing because i was like well what do i need to do first well we really need to define the rules before anything goes on because i don't even understand what you guys are saying and so we get this really well defined rule set and then i was like well i need to be able to build the ui for dice rolling i don't care about building any back end anything i just need to be able to build the ui for dice rolling and then later i was like okay and then later i can actually plug it into real rules so it's really interesting because not knowing what I'm doing actually forced me into this place of like being able to really define what the scope is and design, de- define, you know, what the, the use cases are in a way that I feel like I wish I did more on normal applications. And and I was wondering, have you had the experience where just the aspect of developing games means there's either a more of an inclination or a more it's easier to or something define the rules in a way where we wish we did with our normal client work but yeah is this making any sense of where i'm going here it just feels different to me in a way and i'm like oh this is how i'm supposed to be doing it all the time (laughs) yeah it's kind of like the whole bdd thing right where you get all of the examples and everything up front from the client before you start building anything but in reality, I mean, a lot of times we just assume that we know what's going on and we're right more often than we are wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I guess a, a lot of times agencies especially make assumptions and then iterate and then just try to deliver as early and as quickly and as frequently as possible and hope that, you know, things get caught early on. Yeah. But I think for game development, it's kind of funny because... I really feel like game development is really costly. Like web development is also really costly. Just programming in general is just so expensive. It takes a long time. Are you are you uh, kind of moving slowly with your project? It's very slow. I it, 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 I'll I'll email them once a week and be like, hey, I got three hours. Um, the dice stop rolling once you set them aside. You know, and then I'll email them again the next week, and I'll be like, uh, you can set them aside. But it's now, it's now, I'm basically, I add like one logical rule every week is what I have time for. So Mm -hmm. like you can set them aside, but based on the whole rule that you guys said, where if you pick, you know, if you pick the number four, it also sets aside all other dice with the number four up. That was one of their things. So the first week it didn't do that. You can only set aside one die. And then later I was like, okay, now it's set aside all the other die with the same. And the next week I was like, oh, there's the additional rule that if you set aside a number that's lower than the other number, you no longer, you know, it errors out or whatever. And like piece by piece, I'm like each, each week I get a single rule in, but yeah, like you said, it's just taking forever. Yeah. See, I can see, I can totally see, approaching that with a bunch of tests that define the rules Mm -hmm. and then once all of those tests are done once you have tests that kind of prove that all of these things are done kind of going through them and filling them in a little bit uh using like i don't know you're doing in javascript 
Yeah, and the problem is I was an idiot and thought, why don't I just do this in pure JavaScript rather than, you know, a framework of any sort? Because I was like, this is, frameworks are built for like more MVC type stuff. So I was like, even if the JavaScripts have testing, which is good, and data binding, which is good, they're built for something very different than a game. So I did it in pure JavaScript, which, but that means I don't even know how I would start doing testing. It's easier without a framework, usually, testing. Do tell. Um, yeah, so you, you kind of, if if you start with the test first and you're using some kind of test framework, of course, you're bringing in, I don't know, Jasmine or something, whatever mm -hmm. suits you. Uh, and you write a test and then you kind of mock at like not mock, uh, sorry, you kind of write some example code of how that would be tested. And then you go bit by bit into making that code work. Then you've already kind of written the test and you've already kind of gotten all of that figured out. And then you just have to write the other code that makes it work. Right. So I'm not really a, much of a JavaScript developer. I, I, just have been lucky that way, I guess. But <laughs> it's uh, like what I'm doing. Um, I'm also kind of working on building a, a like a tabletop game, but in in computer. Uh, so I'm taking a game I like uh, that's off the shelf. It's just a, a little solitaire card game, and it has like beautiful art and really super basic rules. And I'm writing it in C sharp so that I can kind of put a nice little presentation layer on it through Unity 3D and kind of do that kind of stuff. But the way I'm kind of approaching it is kind of like what I was saying, where you have some kind of tests and they tell you, okay, these are the rules. And I just pull them straight from the book. You know, I just pull everything straight from the book mm -hmm. uh, bit by bit, just working from the top of the instructions down and just kind of implement everything with these tests and then kind of go through and build in, make example code the way I, I feel like it should be written, you know, kind of commented out and then go in and kind of iterate and, and, TDD, the rest of the domain and everything. So um, it, are you finding that you're just kind of writing stuff to make it work? Um, and that's why it's hard to test. You're not, you're not kind of doing the test first approach. You're, you're just saying, okay, what can I get working in the browser right now? Yeah, well, I didn't do any tests at all because I started with the UI. And I always had imagined what I was going to do is I was going to get a functioning UI and then I was going to stop and I was going to build the actual foundation layer. And then that was going to be more testy test test tested and 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 then i was going to use some kind of data binding to actually kind of connect the two but what i found was that in building the ui layer because it's javascript there was so much of the logic that actually just was in the ui layer like for example don't allow them to click this button if this thing is in this particular state and so i ended up basically like kind of mixing the ui and the logic together in a way i really don't like so i'm trying one of the things i'm trying to do is separate the logic and the data state back out from the ui now because that was never that was never my intention it just kind of happened as i was as i was going um but one of the things that i did, i struggled with the most is um without i i don't know a good vanilla javascript way to do data binding um, because you need some way to basically say like when i make a change to for example like for in this particular one um you roll five dice and then you pick one of the faces and then you set aside all the dice that have that same number into the pool so that every dice can have a value at every given moment, which is the face. And then every dice can be, every die can be in either the live container or the pool container. So we could just start with the, the concept of they have values, they, you know, and they can be in a particular position, right? Um, so that's something that seems like a perfect opportunity to do in memory. And I'm doing it in memory in my JavaScript, right? But the problem is what I do right now is when you change it, it both moves it in memory and also triggers the DOM change versus data binding, which would say whenever anything's moved in memory, automatically ch change the DOM to reflect it for me. And what I don't know how to do in vanilla JavaScript is to do the kind of listening to those behaviors. And maybe it's just I needed like hand roll a pub sub system, maybe. I don't even know what that would look like in JavaScript. Yeah, so this is awesome. I think this is a really good uh, project for you right now. Um, I think that you, you're you on the right track. I think that a pub sub is the right way to go. Um, so kind of like the way I'm doing it is I have the entire domain, the the game itself, modeled uh, in, in just C-sharp. So I'm using Unity 3D. So that has all these framework-specific stuff. It has all this nice visual editor. I can do all these graphic stuff, but I'm just completely staying out of that now. I'm just in Visual Studio, right? Mm -hmm. So... I have the domain written and tested, so test first, so that I don't have to think too hard about the about the whole coding process. I say, here's the rule I want to uphold, then I go write the, the code. So it's back and forth, really simple, um, and I know it works, um, which is really important because games are just this, they generally tend to be this, this ball of state 
the mutable state that's like floating around, you know, and you're yeah. trying to follow it around and it's really difficult to manage. And so what you have is you started running your interface first. So you wanted to see effects. You wanted to see results in, in your display, meaning that you have to have all of this, all your layers, all, all of the different types of code kind of working together in order to orchestrate this final result that you want right away. Um, and if you were coding to test, then you only have to have this specific small piece working and, 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 and actually doing what it's supposed to without the rest. So right now I have my entire domain uh, kind of just coded with no presentation whatsoever. Just it's only delivering its value to the tests. And then the way it works is whenever you do something like, let's say, um, I draw a card into my hand, right? So that fires a domain event that the, a card was drawn to my hand. And inside of that event, event I have actually the, the card that I drew. And so I have all these events for whenever anything happens. And I think it's with these event-driven games, like card, board games, dice games, a lot of these things that don't really need a game loop. So do you, are you familiar with the concept of a game loop? I've heard it, uh, but just let's just say no. Okay, so um, usually these things are abstracted out. Um, so the game loop is just running over and over again. It says, like, while you're not exiting out of the game or whatever, just do this loop over and over again. Right. And one iteration through that loop is one frame. So that will include things like handling Got input, it. AI, updating all the states, uh, rendering everything. So when you say 60 frames a second, um, it means 60 times this game loop is running per second. And somewhere in there it's saying... If the time delta between the last frame and now is not appropriate, just wait and do nothing. And that's how you save battery life, just waiting, you know? I used, to write, it. I used to write Flash, and I did some games in Flash, so that, that totally makes uh, sense. Um, so in, the, in, in my situation, Unity 3D is handling all that game loop and updates and everything for me, but I'm not really even there yet. So I have all these domain events thrown, and then I have a finite state machine, uh, which is just basically a definition of... Every time, um, like the, the begin state for the game, it sets up my deck based on the expansions that are added in or whatever, and then it shuffles the deck, and that's that whole phase. And then once it gets a domain event, uh, initial hand was drawn or whatever, then it'll say, okay, transition to the, the play state. And once it's in the play state, you either play a card down or you discard a card. And then once either of those events fires off, it transitions to the, the draw state. And so the, the game flow is managed with the finite state machine. But everything is run with events and listeners. So all these domain events, they're just firing. And they don't even know if anybody's listening. And I'm, I'm using an event dispatcher. And I gave a talk at Laracon in New York City about uh, command bus and domain events. And I'm using those same concepts here as well. I, I think it's just uh, this is just how I like to write this kind of software, this, this event kind of driven software. Mm-hmm. And so when events fire off, um, I can do these cool things. So my finite state machine in the begin phase, it might bind a whole bunch of presentation layer listeners to different domain events. So if it says card was drawn, it might bind this listener that will actually then animate a card going to the player's hand in the UI. And it knows what to show because it knows what the actual card is. And the card has its symbol, its color, and everything like that in the event. So it can actually construct that card, animate it coming off the deck, going into your hand. And then all of those animations are just listeners to the the domain events. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I think that's it's funny because I'd never actually said it out loud, but the thing that is missing has been missing that I've known has been missing for a while in order to do it in a, a really well decoupled way like this has been the eventing slash pub sub kind of idea and that's why i kept looking at it and saying man should i remake this in a framework that has uh data binding because data binding you know as i would need it in this case is basically like uh presentational event listeners to my domain events right that's that's what i want is i want the, the presentation to respond to the to the domain but if it's if it, it I, I was at the beginning of this podcast was the first time I said out loud, what I really need is just a hand rolled pub sub system. And then I realized yeah. that is, that is what I really need. And that's something <laughs> I'm perfectly, I understand the architecture of pub sub well enough to be able to create one of those basically like the ability. So, and, and I mean, if we think about what that is and you can correct me in this, it's basically the ability to sub- subscribe listeners like upfront, you know, in, in, in your initial provision and then the ability to trigger events and then, you know, 
process through which things should actually be hand- listening, you know, handling handling that event based on some particular criteria, and then passing that event to all the registered listeners that are appropriate for it. Yeah. So, so I, okay. I think that uh, writing this all from scratch is the best possible s- s- scenario. I think that. Uh, data binding, especially two-way, two-way data binding, I'm just incredibly uninterested in. I think it's a really bad idea. In general, I think the data should only flow one way. Uh, I think that events should be fired and modify some state that propagates down through. Basically, like React.js, it's like more of a functional mm-hmm. approach. It's, I think this is like all these other frameworks out there. Um, they have their purposes, and people like them, and people know them, and are productive in them, and that's fine. But when it comes to actual... Uh, Let's, how do I say this? When it comes to writing stuff in a way that will give you the most benefit, I really believe that in general data binding, like two-way data binding especially, is not a particularly uh, flexible thing. I think that you end up, uh, it's like to me writing a bunch of shared mutable state all the time where you don't know how things are going to be updating or where, and maybe you have to have a special case for when this is updated. And it's just, it's just a nightmare of testing through trial and error. And I'd really rather write clean, simple classes that all do everything they're supposed to do. And you know they work because they're they're unit tested. And just forego integration testing as absolutely much as possible and, like, just try not to have any of it. Um, well, the good thing about go that in, is – oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, then go in and when you have something working – get the presentation layer brought in and then see something. So I think that we all have a tendency to want to code and visualize and iterate. And I think that's great. So the way that's really good to do that with game development, I think is to write a little bit of the domain, just enough to get a very basic thing working and then go back a layer and write a little bit of that. And then go back a layer and write the little bit of the presentation layer that wraps it up so that you can actually then interact with something and visualize something because that's when you can when you can play with something that's really important to iterating on the game design or iterating on the user interface and all these things but if if we don't start like deep in you know like with a, like a test driven approach then things can logic can start finding its way into all kinds of strange places and it can make it very hard to just prove that this stuff works at all or figure out where the errors are and, and, and where otherwise it's, it's actually kind of effortless to know that things work. Yeah. I think um, what I was going to say is, especially in the type of game development that I'm doing right now, two way, two way data binding doesn't actually really make sense because there's not really any way because two way data binding in JavaScript tends to, tends to be someone changes something using an HTML type thing and then it gets synced back up and I definitely hear what you're saying is you don't know how it's going to be modified but thankfully I don't need to have that conversation because all they're able to do is click and if they're clicking on things then I'm going to have to bind a you know a function to that anyway right so the function I'm going to bind is just going to be the function that says and actually that's what it is right now it binds a function you know or binds a method or whatever to the behavior click and then on that it changes the domain in a pretty reasonable and relatively well-structured way but then after that it says and then also go change the dom rather than doing it listeners and, and pub sub it just says now go change the dom and i hate it because every single one of my methods says do these things that are really good and domainy and then after that make all the dom changes that are necessary to reflect that versus it being kind of separated and so that's why there's it, i could do testing on individual functions but testing you know uh, and I, I guess I don't. You would have to do integration testing to test the the pub sub and everything. Um, but yeah, so I've I've been able to abstract and extract the the domain work into you know JavaScript in memory objects being like the canonical representation of these things. But it's still just too intricately tied to the DOM for me to be able to feel like I can either test it or change the presentation layer to use pub sub or something like that. So I think yeah. uh, that's definitely next steps for me. Yeah, I think things will come together really well. And I was really just wanting to complain about data binding. I figured. It was good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so, yeah, you're using JavaScript. And so you're just doing everything with CSS animations and whatnot. Yeah, and if anybody's interested, it's it's on it's a github.com slash Matt Stauffer slash podcast war. And uh, I just set it up to push to deploy at podcastwar.net. So it's literally online. You can view source. And as I make changes, it just pushes it up there. Um, but yeah, what it's doing right now is it's vanilla JavaScript. It's it's it. I'm not using JavaScript templating yet, which I'm, I'm going to switch to. But right now, it's just basically you have like five die objects um, that are actual HTML elements. 
and then it initializes each of those with like a it's not quite a class javascript class i'm using uh functional inheritance i forget how they call it so but basically it's object-oriented programming ish in javascript so it creates a die object that has methods on itself and it has things like move to this or move to that or and that changes its state but also affects the dom and it basically when initializes it attaches the actual html element with the the matching id um to this die um uh in, in a javascript object so each of them is kind of it's kind of its own thing in a relatively well abstracted way but it's also intricately tied to its um dom representation um which on the one hand makes sense and on the other hand i wish i could stretch it out a little bit further so that's a little bit oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say that's a little bit like how every game development framework ever works where it's kind of like active record you have this entity that makes sense like a player entity or a character or an enemy or something like that and then you subclass some kind of framework entity object Mm -hmm. or in unity 3d you might subclass mono behavior in um something like flixel or flashpunk you might subclass an entity uh uh you know abstract class or something that provides all of this framework type stuff it's a lot Mm -hmm. like it's like active record in that it's tying together your domain with other application concerns. And I think that if you could get away from kind of that kind of stuff and just go fully event driven, you would be really happy with the flexibility. Yeah. And, and when I first did it, there was no die object at all. All the behavior lived on passing DOM elements into functions. But I knew that that was just a temporary stopgap. And so I stretched it out into now there's now a die object that has a DOM element as a property on it. But I, you know, it's just the further separation of that. And it's fun because I've never learned, I mean, so I've never learned how to code at all other than just teaching myself, but, but I've at least read some books on coding and I've been doing it for a very long time, but game coding. Um, so when I, when I wrote flash games, there were no flash game development frameworks. And this is like action script one, maybe action script two. Uh, I remember trying to recreate Mario like side scroller type stuff and just trying to do collision detection alone. There were no blog posts about it. There were no frameworks or anything. So I don't have the experience of being able to see like, hey, these problems that people have solved on the regular, you know, how do they solve them? Which on the one hand is terrible because it means I'm reinventing the wheel. But on the other hand, it's really good because how often do I get the chance to go and totally like, at least for me, uncharted territory and just try things and see what works and doesn't. Yeah, there's actually a pretty good uh, book that came out not long ago called uh, Game Programming Patterns, I think. That sounds like um, what I should probably read. Is by this guy Robert Neustrom, or I, I'm I'm butchering his name, I'm sure, but I'll put it I'll put the link in the show notes that I actually got a copy, even though it's I got a print copy, even though it's available free as a PDF online. So anybody can go and just read it for free. And nice. uh, I think he has an HTML version you can read. Uh, but it's pretty cool. It, it actually, to me, is a much better design pattern book than like gang of four um i know gang of four is seminal and it's you know it's it's a different thing so this is better for learning i really i really believe it because game development is fundamentally more interesting to many of us than other types of development and especially the way the gang of four talks it's kind of dry and you know dry (laughs) yep and so this is a lot more interesting because you're talking about things from games you're talking about how things interact and how these different patterns are used and um, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty cool. So when I, I was actually reading through the book and I found that I could, I could just burn through a quarter of the book in, I don't know, like a, an hour or something like that, because it was a lot of stuff I already knew, but it was really pleasant to be reinforced by, uh, such, you know, I- examples that were a lot more interesting. And I just, in general, I think the book is a pretty solid go-to for any developer, not just like a game developer who wants to kind of get a grip on some new ways of of doing things so they talk about finite state machines and uh, flyweight pattern and all these other things that are still quite relevant to whatever we might do honestly so interestingly i i feel like i've read and learned about finite state machines several times and yet as you say it right now i can't remember what it is could you can you do a quick overview of that yeah so um in, in there's a lot of different variants on the approach but the general idea is that you have this system that has only one state and it has the logic for state transitions. So it knows that when this happens, transition to this state. When this happens, transition to this state. So an example usage of a finite state machine might be a character animation. So if the character is on the ground, um, then they have a certain set types of animation that can be used. Uh, if they're on the ground and, and staying 
still, then they have an idle animation. If they're on the ground and moving, then they could have any number of animations. Uh, so an example of a moving animation would be a walk or a run. You could have both of those. But imagine if you're like using a special power, like shooting a fireball or something like that. Um, you might actually have so you have actually a, a standing fireball th throw animation and a moving fireball throw animation or you might just have a fireball throw animation that fires off if you're standing or moving because like you've played games where you're moving left and right but when you shoot something your character's feet are firmly planted on the ground even though you're moving around yep so an, an example of a finite state machine might be you know if you're moving if your horizontal velocity is greater than zero then you're in this state uh and if you're doing this or doing that, then you're in this state. And you can actually have multiple uh, state machines running at once, working together um, with different state combinations. Uh, and it really helps deal with stuff. I use it for game flow, really. Um, so in this game, in every game that's like a card or a board game, right, you have phases. In every game you have it, but cards and board games are to me more interesting as like a game designer nerd. Like a, I'm really into game mechanics. I've been studying game design like kind of as a pretty hefty hobby since I was like 10. And that's actually why I got into programming in general. I used to make like a hundred games a year or something like that. Just awful half working abominations of game design. Yeah. So finite state machines help me manage the game flow uh, from, you know, setting up the game, the initial setup to the player getting that now has this decision. And then the player, then uh, based on some event, the player now has that decision. And it's usually a lot more states than you expect. So if you sit down and think, okay, if, if I play a card, then I draw a card. That's a really simple mechanic that you can use in um, like a, a paper game where you don't have to really think about how it's actually working. But when you have to formalize all of these ideas into a computer, you have to, you pull apart so many things that you didn't have to deal with as a human. So if I play a card and I draw a card, where did I play it to? What rules, what invariants have to be guarded? So I can't play one card if its symbol matches the previous symbol that was played. So that has to be protected against. And I have to do that. I have to protect against that at the domain level. So I'm not even thinking about presentation layer yet. Of course, when it comes to the presentation layer, I'll highlight whatever cards can be played or, or wherever you can move the currently selected card or whatever. So it's obvious. And you know, the UI just won't allow you to drag a card to the wrong spot or whatever, but that's a completely different type of uh, concern than just the game knowing how to maintain its state, right? That's more about just making the UI really usable. So those are completely separate concerns. Um, so you keep going through all these states, draw a card. Um, you have to trigger new abilities. Then you have to trigger, okay, I draw the five cards off the top of the deck and I have to reorder them. That's that's a whole new state to, to be in. And where, you, where one domain event could have a different entire uh, way it plays out than it would if the same event was fired in a different state. So I think states are a really good way to manage like that flow. And my architecture is basically like I have the domain itself, guard its invariants and throw domain events. Um, I trigger those actions by firing commands into a command bus. Command handlers take those commands, which are abstracted invocations of methods and actually implement those methods. So a draw card command will be the uh, tied to the draw card handler. And those are essentially just one object that just even does one thing. It's almost like a single function. So you could have an anonymous function that was uh, drawing a card and inside it would have the behavior for it. Um, but I have, I'm taking that anonymous function and I'm turning it into a class, which is essentially like a C-sharp delegate. You can kind of think of it as it's like an object with a single execute um method right. that does what I need. And then I pull out the method invocation into a separate class. So then I can just pass new draw card or something like that into the command bus. I just know it's going to fire off and happen. And once the command fires off, all of the do domain interactions happen. And then the domain events that were raised get thrown into a domain event dispatcher. And then from there, it just goes everywhere. The game flow is managed through the finite state machine. And part of the what the finite state machine does is it dynamically binds uh, different listeners in the presentation layer, in the graphics layer, in the sound layer. It binds different listeners to different domain events. So if a card was drawn um, from the deck, I want to have the option to trigger different animations, different 
uh, UI, different uh, sound effects for that single event, depending on what state I'm in. So my tests are like, okay, does this state trigger these different uh, events and like listen with these different listeners and stuff like that? So it's it's tested all the way through to that level. And then only in the UI is any kind of game loopy thing happening where I say, I want to move the card from here to here. And during that time, I want to rotate it and I want to use this kind of easing function so that it rotates unevenly. So it has like this snappy feel to it. And so that everything is divided up. And, and that's basically the architecture I'm taking this time. So we just, we talked about a lot of things, we talked about command buses, talked about finite state machines and other things, but let's, let's start with finite state machines. So a finite state machine is a program of some sort that has a probably two or more, I'm guessing, states, and it can only be in one state at a time, and it is responsible for knowing what the process of transitioning from one state to another is, and it's also responsible for opening up or validating various ways to transition or fail to try to transition between one state and another. Is that like a decent kind of high-level idea what a finite state machine is? Yeah, I would essentially just say that without the validation part at the end. It just, it has a bunch of states, and the states know... It knows how to transition from state to state and why. Okay. And so the way I do is each state is a different object and I inject all the objects into the state machine and then I tell it to transition to and I give it the name of of that object. Okay, so we've got finite state machines handling at least one, maybe more. They're handling the presence of state. And it totally makes sense. I think most games are always going to be, you know, you're in this mode or you're in this phase or whatever. So that totally makes sense. Um, so events make sense. I mean, player rolled dice, dice, you know, landed, pl- player chose this. I, I find myself constantly, like if you look at the code for podcast war, there's a whole bunch of just booleans that are basically saying, are we in this particular, you know, has, has yeah. the player chosen and yeah, state oh, checking. Yeah. And then when you, when you re-roll, it has to set that back to false because the the opportunity for them to, to choose is now available again. But it's weird because you're, you're toggling a player chose the die flag when you're rolling, even though rolling has nothing to do with player choosing die, but that's the logic for how you reset it. So it's really interesting kind of the amount of state that I'm tracking in various places and how it's tied to things that don't seem to be there. So I feel like the, again, this idea of the separation of both kind of commands if you want to call them or events or whatever but yeah there's this kind of idea that like i want to know that i can add a listener that says when the player throws the dice that event gets thrown and then other concerns are going to say well i know that every time that particular thing happens i also should reset the state of this to that or whatever and and i'm hoping that tracking it i don't know about finite state machines and what i'm working in but i know that i do like the idea of tracking it in something other than a whole bunch of loose booleans floating around my javascript uh, code so yeah it's i think it's interesting what if you had a 3d simulation and you rolled the dice and let the simulation choose the the die rolls right um because in my system, there's no there's no uh, random other than deck shuffling. So deck shuffling is fine. I had my buddy Robin as just like a little uh, exercise for him, write up a Fisher Yates shuffle, which is a you know a really good way to shuffle uh, a set of items, a finite or a discrete hmm. set of items, so that they're sufficiently randomized. And this is a really interesting point for me uh, as like a kind of game design nerd. You ever play uh, like a game and it says after you do this shuffle. Right. Um, so what do you do? Do you just do like a riffle shuffle? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking, all right, the, the exact amount of times you have to riffle shuffle to randomize the cards in the deck so that there's no one you know, pattern based on the original state that's more discernible than another. Uh-huh. It's seven. Right. So you have to shuffle seven times. Wow. And so I'm thinking when game designers write in the instructions, do this, then shuffle the deck. Nobody's thinking I'm going to shuffle this seven times, so it's sufficiently randomized. Um, and as a matter of fact, Magic the Gathering players and whatnot, they intentionally do not shuffle more than like twice because they want their their cards to be mixed in at like a specific ratio and stuff hmm. like that. Like if you actually like fully randomize a deck, then you might not get the resources you need at all. So it's it's really interesting how how these little mechanisms like shuffling just doing a riffle shuffle a couple times actually is not randomizing at all it's just it's it's you know if you if you shuffle really riffle shuffle really well then the actual end result is identical is like entirely deterministic 
So it's kind of relying on the fact that you're going to put some cards in one and some cards in two. Sometimes you'll do it on the top. Sometimes they'll do it on the bottom. Um, so it's, it's kind of strange that way. So like when people write code that randomizes on a computer, it's a lot easier to, to randomize than it is for somebody who's playing cards. But is that what we want to do when we're digitizing a paper game? Do we want to provide that true randomization? Probably, right? But it's also neat to write the, the algorithms of people doing a riffle shuffle and then make that go seven times, you mm, know? Interesting. I, I think it's interesting to put in these like little touches to the, the code that nobody will ever see and are just kind of game design nerditry, if that makes sense. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of those little decisions do end up kind of giving even just the vague feeling of realness or not realness. Like one of the things that I hate about Podcast War right now is that uh, I was trying to stay away from teaching myself an entire like 3D uh, display framework because I just knew it would never happen. I mean, I've got a lot of stuff going on and this is my free time kind of thing. So I was like, I know how to do CSS 3D transforms. The problem is the only way I knew how to do it was a single transition. So it's basically go from whatever face you're, you have showing in the die to whatever the new face is and transition over the span of five seconds, you know, 0.5 seconds. That's, that's kind of what it is. So the problem is it never feels like a real role because it would need, you know, what if you transition to one over? Well, then it spends 0.5 seconds just turning over, you know, like, you know, a quarter turn or something. So yeah. it, it definitely feels very unrealistic in the throwing. And that makes me really frustrated. But the problem is if I wanted something different, first of all, I would need to use a real 3D framework. But second of all, I would need to have the display know enough the display kind of like you were saying would have to be the thing that's generating the right because right now javascript generates a random number and it tells the display turn until you get to that number well the thing is how does the display know well you know you turned five times and rolled and bounced twice and you know like how, how do you even begin to do that kind of work in the display logic and i can't even i can't even go there like you know maybe that's a 2.0 3.0 sure 5.0 <laughs> well, tell me this tell me about so, it so okay um so I do this whole thing in my web web apps, right? So if I want to register a member, I'll create a uh, register member command, right? And it'll have all the necessary information, like the email, the password, whatever. And I'll just fire that into the system and it'll get stuff done. Um, and people sometimes look at my code and think, why are you generating a UUID in your controller? Because I'm actually deciding what the member's ID is going to be the moment the system understands that it's registering a member, Right. And, right. I, and I've talked to some people about this. And the idea is like I, identity is this really interesting concept. So when you start talking about somebody before when you're if you're saying, saying to me, hey, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my brother. Right. I know nothing other than he's your brother. But already I have created an identity for him. It's just it's an identity tied to very little information. It's Matt Salfer's brother. And then you start telling me more about him, his name, kind of what he does, this or that. And more and more information gets attached to it. So before I even have a functional, you know, uh, amount of information like uh, that I can use to make decisions or whatever, I already have created the ID of your brother in my mind. So I have a, like this, this unique thing that refers to your brother, even with having no information. So in my in my apps, if I do a register member, then the second that they get passed into my system, the the system already has this ID for them, and that allows me to do a lot of interesting things. I can refer to that member using the ID to um, re reference other things if if necessary, or trigger infrastructure level uh, behaviors or throw whatever. Um, and I don't have to wait for the primary key to come back from my database system, which really doesn't have anything to do with my domain and to me the identity is like a domain concern i don't care how it's implemented exactly but i still i still want to have it so i still want my member from the moment it's instantiated to be valid and to have an identity and all these things and i think that 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 kind of plays well into this example where you are talking about okay what if a physics simulation rolled a die how does that come back into your code well what if you said um you know okay we need to roll this die and then once the die roll finished, it fired off an event, um, a service level event that said, you know, okay, the die was rolled. And then you kind of ran a command or you did something that said, hey, I'm not actually asking you to roll a die. I'm telling you immediately what the die roll was. So your domain is designed not to randomize and roll a die, but to actually get the die roll from the client, like getting the UUID from the client. 
So it gets all that information it needs and then it does something with it. It's not in charge of doing that die roll because that's now outside of its concern, right? Hmm. Does that make sense, or did I just kind of ramble through it pretty? Hard? No, no, it it makes sense, and I I think the the biggest I'm I'm actually perfectly comfortable with like I don't care because like one of the things I like is the idea of a die object being responsible for its own rolling. Like it doesn't have to be JavaScript domain kind of tells die, hey, your your roll is going to be five, you know, go not, go roll to five. Now it might be, but like it, it could be you just say die dot roll you know, and give me back a number. I, the The direction of it, I've been up and up back and forth a couple times about where the appropriate place for that behavior to be, to live is. The bigger problem for me right now is actually purely presentational. It's just limitations of CSS and, and the limitation of my time, free time to go learn some physics simulation, 3d kind of framework, or whatever. But so, so tell, I, you said, you said it a couple different directions, which one are you advocating would you advocate that the domain randomizes a number and then tells the display system, hey, go randomize, to, go, do, go do a physics simulation that ends up on this number? Or would you <laughs> would you advocate, you say, go do a physics simulation and then in a couple seconds when you're done running or or now, but whatever, you know, like give me back a number. If you're going to have your physics simulation do your die rules, then you have to code your domain. You have to code the app out so that it accepts die rolls and that's how you can do testing you can test by injecting whatever die roll you want and whatever outcomes you can test against those um i don't think it's reasonable to come up with a number and say okay physics go make this number happen i don't think yeah that's i didn't i like, can't even imagine because it's not physics yeah. anymore right it's, it's yeah animation. so you can yeah. you can reasonably throw an event when a die is successfully like a dice uh, right. or a die you know die and dice is just the worst possible because it feels I, like it's backwards right it's just wrong like i say dice all the time when i mean one and yep. sometimes i say die correctly but i always second guess myself now i can't even use this word yep. without second guessing myself constantly so just I'm call them rolly thingies <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and uh Sorry. that's just like uh Dobelstena or something, and it completely <laughs> bypasses the entire problem. There you go. But I just hate that word. Sorry. Um, but uh, I think that if you have a simulation roll, and once it stops moving or whatever criteria you you apply to it, it figures out the number, fires off an event, and then sends in. Uh, and then whatever listener hears that event, okay, a five was rolled. Now I'm going to do whatever is appropriate at this time. Then it just becomes a game of when are you attaching which listeners to which events? And so as long as you have like a finite state machine or something like that to attach different listeners to different events at different times. So what I'm doing is between each phase change, I actually just dump the the domain event dispatcher. Mm-hmm. I, I use a new domain event dispatcher, right? So I'm I'm all I have to do is rebind them, which is just you know, here, have this object reference, have this object reference. So like four or five object references per state or something like that. It's like a performance non-issue. And it means that all I can always tell what's bound and I never have problems of adding or removing or making sure these are added or removed or whatever. Um, so the event fires off and then the right thing happens in your system and it goes on. But you're doing, okay, so you're doing it in JavaScript. So everything's real time. There's no state saves or anything. Um, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that. It is in JavaScript. It is real time. And there's no concept of like waiting for something to run and then ping you back. Is that what you're asking? No, I meant like state, like save games or like, oh, um, no, yeah, no, nothing like that. Because a lot of times uh, you think about save games and you think, all right, how are we going to do this? Do we just save the entire state then reload it? And that's one way of doing it. What I've been thinking about doing is just, just going full on event sourcing with, uh, with this app I'm working on now. Hmm. So I think I might get it kind of working and then just kind of go full on event sourcing. So all I have to do is save the sequence of events, um, which I can use with like, you can even reduce the amount of memory with like a lookup table or something, or there's a lot of ways to reduce the memory so that you could actually like have somebody play back their game Hmm. or undo moves or um, have save games that just when they load them up, they replay the events uh, you can do statistical analysis, like how often did uh, this event happen in the sure. game. You can come up with statistical analysis uh, after the game's already been played, you know, and, and all the normal 
benefits of event sourcing. So I think I'm thinking really hard that I'm just going to make this thing event sourced. And and it seems to make know. a ton of sense for for the tabletop because it's all about series of turns. You know, like with a die roll, like you you it's this this game I'm developing is going to you know take you 30 seconds to finish it out, and that's not super interesting. But especially with a long running tabletop, and you're curious about kind of just seeing things like what's happened over time. That's that's really interesting. You can use that information also to inform um, your AI or inform uh, user interface elements or who knows what, like without having to just track all the state kind of crazy, like, you know, and then your graphics and your sound situation end up being a projection of those events. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm really kind of into this whole event sourcing thing for event driven everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's just it's to me, it's like this huge playground because everything just it's just so fast. Uh, it causes me no problems and the flexibility and testability of everything just goes through the roof. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You've got me thinking, I, I know you're talking about event sourcing and I, I think it's really cool, but you've got, you got my brain running on JavaScript, uh, 3d physics simulators. Cause I know they exist with like uh 3.js and stuff. And I'm just like, can I do that? Is that a thing? But I feel like you that's could drop a, an hour into figuring it out. No I, harm. I feel like I could drop 15 hours into <laughs> trying because you got to learn 3JS and then you got to get a physics plug in for it. And they're all not well documented because they're for super nerds. And I don't, know. I don't know. I think you'd be surprised because game developers tend to be really um, how to put this politically. Uh, more focused on making a game than programming. Huh? All right. So, you know, I just can go and find like Game Maker Studio and make your game in moments and deploy it to HTML5. Sure. I just know that I've I've looked at games for like I should probably look that up before I end up writing this whole game from scratch as I should I should probably look at that Game Maker Studio. But yeah, like as I as I've looked like I looked up a lot of like, you know, JavaScript 3D simulators and all kind of stuff. They're like you know, a little bit advanced because they're for like the people who are at the forefront of thinking about how you build those things, unless you're building like using something like Game Maker Studio, I'm guessing, which is like for the people who don't understand how to do this, this is how you do it, right? But like for people like me where I don't know what I'm doing, I'm not a 3D geek who understands the ins and outs of 3D physics and I'm not using something like Game Maker Studio. I think that's the weird spot where there's, you know, I really need to learn more if I'm going to try and go the whole way down that road. And I just don't have, I can't learn Unity. Maybe I can learn 3JS. Maybe that's that's one thing I should try. I think you could get some kind of uh, primitive, uh, like a square, like let's say a D6, right? Mm -hmm. I think you could get a D6 cube launched at a surface with a little bit of rotational velocity. Uh, I think you could do that pretty quick. Well, you know, I'm seeing demos. If you, if you, I just Googled JavaScript dice physics and there's a blog post about learning 3JS and it's how to use 3D physics with 3JS and PhysiJS. And there's, they have examples here that are exactly what you just talked about. They launched some D6s at a surface. They bounced. Um, so there's one piece, but the, it, I think it's, so can I in two hours take that and turn it to the point where it looks a little bit more like like what I want, but more importantly, I can label the the die faces and get the answer for you know for what each one ended up rolling at. And if so, then maybe that's the, maybe I should do that. Yeah, web and game development are a lot the same because you have it's like very multidisciplinary. You can't really do it all with just one skill set. Yeah. So um, and just the games are same. You're, you're going to have to texture the die. Uh, you're going to have to like, you know, imagine a, a die unrolled into like a paper craft type situation yeah. and draw it. And that's just how it is. Yeah, I can do that. That 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 I can handle. I think it's just the the this this game, I would say the game is probably another probably three weeks of two to three hours a week away from actually being usable unless I decide to go for a full 3D roll. And then <laughs> like I don't even know when this thing's going to happen. So does, does Corona, there's this, there's this game engine called Corona. Uh, does it deploy to HTML5? No, let's look. Awesome. Because it's, it's all Lua and it's really basic. Uh, iOS. No, it doesn't. It's just Boo. actual devices. Looks like, I, but there's I, honestly, so many of these think, out there. I hadn't even thought about looking at those. Cause it's, you know, First of all, I wanted to learn as I did it. But yeah. the other thing is, I'm just, last time I tried to write games, they were all entirely from scratch and Flash. Oh, so I just didn't even think, oh, yeah, people have written libraries for that since then. 
<laughs> one really cool thing you could do is kind of just find uh, a, a library or, or some kind of tool that you'd like and whatever programming language it, it allows for just write up your domain and all this stuff in that language just in a local editor not even mess with yeah. the library and then once you're like okay i can i have tests that represent like the whole game you know yeah. uh, just bring in something and jack into it and you then that's the fun part like to me i love i love game development like punching back and forth like i've been developing this game called punch girl punching back and forth off of walls so you can do wall punching mm -hmm. it's like it's like wall jumping where you get to say oh you know it'd, it'd feel a little bit better if, if there's a little bit more vertical velocity added you know and then go and tweaking it and then yeah. trying it again that's just to me it's see the big thing like for me drug. is every single time i've tried anything with one of these kind of makers type thing they always end up spitting it out in a way where you can only ever use the maker to work on it in the future whether that's been, you know, HTML5 or CSS3 or animations, or whatever, they're all like, yeah, yeah, we work with all these open source things. But both a combination of like the compression and algorithms, all kind of stuff that they're spitting it out in, but also even just like the, the way they're using libraries, you just end up in a spot where you don't end up with code that's like, yeah, I can take this code and make it my own. It's like I can use take this code and either use it exactly as it is, or I can go back and edit it in their editor. You know what I mean? So... Yeah, there's like a couple things with that. Like if you're going to use Corona, which is like the easiest possible way to make something move on a screen, uh -huh. um, you are tied in because you're using Lua and they have a – they compile your app on their servers. So you hit the button oh, wow. and it goes off to their servers and it comes back. And, and it makes it so easy because your system, your environment doesn't have to be configured at all. You just hit a button uh, and it, it comes back with working binary, you know, uh, nice. for everything you could ever want. That's cool, but you're totally locked in. But with like Unity 3D, it's just these tools that are a little bit better than, than Corona, for example. Mm -hmm. It comes down to you as a as a software developer. So are you are you coupling to all their stuff? It's like, um, or you know, how does that work? So for me, I don't like coupling to the framework, whether it's web or whatever, because not because I'm going to switch from Corona to Unity 3D or something like that, because I can then unit test everything and know it all works and not even think about the presentation layer so that when I actually get there, life's a breeze, you know, life's yeah. done. It's over. I already have everything working. So now it's just put making it beautiful, you know? And so that's, that's how I feel about these things. So if you're using unity 3d, don't get in there and just start popping game objects into the scene, unless you want to just prototype something out and know that it's going to be awful and not testable, you know, yeah. um, which I've done a million times. Like I have videos on, youtube of me just uploading videos of all the different these different games i make because i just kind of crapped out something fast because i wanted to not program a game i wanted to play a game and tweak with the design and that's when i use stuff like game maker studio because i just want to get something out there but with this it's different i want to i want to try to make this game really really well and see how this whole architectural approach applies to game development and and how do i make it so that I have different user interfaces for different for like Android versus computer desktop versus PlayStation 4, you know? And so I'm I'm really kind of focusing on like architecture and software design in general. But if you just want to make a game and your goal is to make a game, then I highly recommend just finding some piece of crap tool like Game Maker Studio and making it the best you can be. Like people deploy finished games from game maker studio and active record and all of these other quick hack and slash type tools all the time. And they work great. Um, but that's not always what you want. And you know, it's not going to work for everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that a lot of it comes down very much to the particular circumstance that you're in, you know, and mine's different from yours. And I think that, uh, mine is different than mine might be if I decide to make another game in three months. So Yeah. You should definitely write it yourself, though, unless you feel like you get to a point where, okay, I, I don't want to dive into the 3D stuff. Because that's kind of where I started talking about like these, like Corona and everything. If if you can get away with doing as much of it yourself as possible, it it just reveals so much more than if you're using some kind of tool to do it. Yeah, I think it's it, like I said, it's 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 fun, but it's also a learning experience, and and it's not just learning about game development. It's learning about, like I was saying earlier, I mean, defining the rules for the system before you touch a line of code, and just how much of a joy it is to have them extremely well lay out. And it's not just because it's a game; it's also because I'm working with game designers, so they have to basically pitch the entire game from A to Z with examples and with all the rules laid out before they 
can communicate it to me. It's like, man, this is this is the ideal. <laughs> Wish uh, every I project see, worked like this. Yeah, I want to see their original rules. I want to see because because uh, over here we are like big board game nerds, and and so I'm so used to diving into these rule sets. Like, I have this game Mage Knight that I spent probably three or four hours studying the rules before I ever even bought the game, so that when I sat down, I would have a good idea of what was going on. And then I sat down and I went through it myself solo, and then. Me and my wife played it. And then after that, you know, after about five, six hours, we felt like we had a good grasp on everything. And now it's like our favorite game ever. And every weekend we play like try to play like two games and they last like four, five hours each game. And we just try to find the time to, to, to get that in there. We have like another separate little table so that as a family we can eat on the other table and leave the game set up and <laughs> stuff awesome. like that. So I would love to see like the, the more advanced rules that your brother came up with. Yeah, and just just to be clear, they came up with crazy rules, and then we trimmed it down to almost nothing. So it's just a dice game now. But uh, yeah, they're always coming up with uh, with all these you know game, board games and big rule sets and stuff. But I was like, guys, I just want you to know that like it, so the amount of time it took you to write a bullet point, you know, <laughs> that defines a particular thing. That bullet point alone is going to be responsible for like ten hours of work for me. You know, oh, minimum. no joke. So. Uh-huh. I chose like the simplest game I could I could build and the domain itself is up to like a hundred something tests and yeah. I've been working out for hours and hours, just days, weeks. And I'm getting there. It's it's actually coming along and I, I found uh my buddy Mitchell's he's helping me out, so we're gonna get get going faster. But it's no joke, man. The smallest, simplest little thing you can come up with, cut cut it in complexity by like five times and then make that. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, that's, that's fun to talk to you about that. Yeah, you too, man. I'm uh, I'm excited to to share more with you. I don't know if it'll be on the podcast or not, but uh, I think I've got some really good inspiration. I mean, the pub sub is a good, really good start, but just this whole aspect of separating the concerns, I think it makes, you know, we talk about it and there's always back and forth about, you know, how much are you going to do this in your actual client applications? But I think never before has it made as much sense to be really kind of separating your domain from your implementation um, and a lot of these other aspects of like, you know, the ideal way to do your applications, but you don't necessarily always do it. I don't think it's ever made as much sense or been as clear of a win as it is in this particular project, which is really interesting to me. Yeah, I think that when the more types of things you make and the more you knowledge you bring from those different areas back. So if you're making a bunch of mobile apps or you're making flash stuff and then you come and code on the web, you're ine- you know inevitably going to bring some of that to you. I think I started growing a lot more as a developer when I realized that I should not be coding my PHP apps like other people code their PHP apps. Yeah. I like I shouldn't look at them and see okay, this is what I should be doing. I should be applying the kind of programming ideas that I've had all along from like game development and from desktop application development. I should be applying that to the web and then all of a sudden my code and everything got so much better for some reason just being in like the php culture at the time it was like 12 years ago or or more it i I felt like writing really bad php was like the right thing to do uh i have no idea but like i eventually got past this block and said okay i can actually code like this is anything else if i just understand the different pieces i have this the logic and the rules i have the 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 user interface and if i just think of these as the different pieces that are always there with all the other stuff I write, like whether it's a mobile app or a desktop app or a game or whatever, the more or less, a lot of the pieces are the same. So I should be pretty much approaching these in a similar fashion, not, not identical because things change, but they're similar enough. And I, and I really learned from that. And once I was able to get past that, it made a really big difference to me. Yeah, definitely makes sense. All right, man. Well, thanks for letting me ramble a little bit, and uh, it was really good to to talk to you. Yeah, no, you too, man. And thanks for the the, the input and the ideas here. Um, I think it's uh, I mean, it's the same as every single time that you've you've had me on, and it's it's kind of walking through just like you were just talking about right now. It's it's learning about how to not allow other people to tell you how to program it, and but for every person, that's going to be different, right? And I think that in these conversations, I can hear some of the things that especially folks in our particular community can look at as being like kind of high level abstraction architecture things. And sometimes you look at them and say, well, that's just because the smart people in my community are doing them doesn't mean I'm going to. Right. But I get to have, I love the chance here to say just because, you know, maybe a, a, a simpler software as a service that I'm writing in a day to day doesn't need it. Doesn't mean that there aren't, 
opportunities that I'm going to get to actually get to use them. So I love just asking the question of, okay, that's a really cool idea. When can I use it practically? And so just outside the context of asking that question, just happening to run into a context right now where I'm like, oh, all these things are finding their place here. It's It's been a really fun experience. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll sign off with this this final idea. Like, I think it's really important not to necessarily just look at how something is done uh, and then say, oh, that gives me a practical value. I'll start doing it that way. But think about it in an abstract way. Uh, why is it done? What does this really mean? Because when we're writing software and, and it's object-oriented, you can think of these objects as these little factories or these little machines that are running. But I like to think of them as like representations of actual ideas, not like physical objects. We're not, we're not creating a car object to mean a physical object. We're creating a car object to represent the idea of a car. So I think of it as all these ideas that have different purposes and fit together in different ways and do these different things. So if you, if you find something like, for example, we talked about the command bus on, on this podcast a while back. If you find something like the command bus, there's, yes, there's practical benefits. And a lot of times that, you know, people want you to lead with, well, if you have this command bus, then you can log every single command that comes through. So you can provide an audit trail for free. And that's what people want to hear, I think. But I, I think it's a lot more compelling to think about what does this mean in an abstract way? What are we doing? Why, when this gets pulled apart, when you have this command and this handler, what does that mean? And, and like, what can I learn from it in other contexts? So I think that that's a, a really um, important thing for us always to be doing instead of just like kind of parroting uh, techniques, which, you know, I'm as guilty of as anyone else. But uh, I'm just saying, looking at the way these things the meaning of these things in an abstract way, I think is, is really important for our, for our growth. Yeah, definitely agreed. Well, talk to you later, man. All right. See ya. Thanks. See ya.